O holy God in love, reminding us of those words, Father, by John, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. We thank you now as we come, knowing that we need your grace to focus, even as we have had this cold, rainy, dark day that is under your lordship, and we thank you for it. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. The Word became flesh full of, full of grace and truth. So hear us, be with us. Thank you for our Lord Jesus, for this one who is to be called Jesus, because he would save his people from their sins. Give us grace tonight. Show us Christ. Galvanize our attention upon him. Give us hope. We pray for down those who are downcast tonight, whether they're here or watching live stream or within our body. We pray that you would come alongside them. And even that name, that precious name of Emmanuel would encourage their hearts. We bring this to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, just so appreciative of Brother James' message from Genesis 3.15, and frankly, uh, very helpful when, uh, when you take into account the message that we'll be looking at tonight from from Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. This is the third in a four-week series on the Advent, the first from the first 17 verses of this chapter. That's why I wanted Ben to finish reading it so that he read the whole of it. And then last week, we were in John 1, John's um, prologue, which I used even when I prayed. And so tonight, we're in that second part of Matthew 1, uh, verses 18 through 25. I want you to see the, an outline of this sermon. First is Joseph's predicament in verses 18 and 19. This is really at three parts to these eight verses. First, Joseph's predicament in the first two verses. Secondly, the angel's word of promise and hope. All right? And I think it's you, you, you'll want to see between Matthew and Luke's birth narratives the use of angels. No wonder that in the writer, the writer of the book of Hebrews speaks of us entertaining strangers because we might be entertaining angels unawares who are sent as God's ministering spirits. Um, and then finally, Luke's summary. So Joseph's predicament, the angel's word of promise and hope, and then Luke's summary, Luke's summary in verses 22 through 25. Remember here, Joseph and Mary were betrothed, meaning they had legally pledged themselves to one another in marriage. You would say, uh, in the way we would speak of being engaged today, but with a legal dimension to it, typical of that period of time. They were betrothed, but not yet married. Betrothed and not yet together. 
Joseph did not know her, Matthew tells us in verse 25, in that very special, intimate way that husbands and wives know each other, all right? And until she had given birth to a son, at which point we have to assume by what Matthew says that they then did come together. They had already come together in the sense that Joseph took her as his wife, but they had not come together in the sense of consummating their marriage until after Jesus was born. And we're, we're really served well to remember here that his brother James pointed out this morning, Mary was very young, like perhaps somewhere between even 14 and 16 years of age. Well, let's look at Joseph's predicament. I want to point out two words to help you think about these two verses, and that is we see here both Joseph's circumstances, but also his character. And in contrast, Luke highlights Mary, right? So Matthew focused on Joseph, Luke on Mary. Matthew picks up the narrative also at a later point in time than Luke. The point we are introduced to the way the birth of Jesus, Christ and how it took place. At this point, Mary is already pregnant, uniquely pregnant, okay? And Nazareth is in the rearview mirror, for there's no mention of Nazareth in Luke's account until chapter 2 and verse 23, where we're told that in fear of Archelaus, the son of Herod, Joseph fled Judea of Israel back north to Galilee and to the city of Nazareth. And that's how chapter 2 ends. I want us to see how it is that Jesus is of Mary's seed or offspring, building on what Pastor James preached this morning from Genesis 3.15. It would be the offspring of the woman who would bruise the serpent's head, though it would also bruise, that is, the serpent or crush the heel of the woman's offspring, her seed. But there's more here. Look in Matthew 1, if you will, for a moment, and follow this theme. And I appreciate the song that, Wesley, that you had that, that really highlights that it was Jesus who is the son of Mary. We read in Matthew 1, 16, that it was Jesus who was of Mary of whom Jesus was born. So that in this long genealogy, of Matthew 1, verses 1 through 16, only one time is the verb that's translated in the King James begat or became the father of, only one time does that not sit between two names, the father and the son. And that is, it doesn't occur there between Joseph and Jesus. It identifies Mary or Jesus as of Mary, right, as Matthew says, of whom Jesus was born. And it's specifically Mary who is referred to as Jesus' mother. Look in verse 18. It says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. You'll never see parallel language when his father had been betrothed, say, say to Mary. You won't see that language. And it was Mary, in verse 18, who was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, all right? And in, in verse 20, it's the angel of the Lord who says, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It was said by the angel 
that she will bear a son. It was Mary that would bear the son. It was Mary that's designated his mother. It is Mary of whom Jesus was born. It's Greg Nichols that says this is uniquely an asexual conception. It is both a virgin conception and a virgin birth. Impossible. Maybe today with technology and reproductive technology, you would say they're alternatives, but not then. This is miraculous. It is asexual apart from the sex act. Any, uh, any opportunity for there to be conception except by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Second, I want us to see now, look here in these next couple of verses, in verses 20 to 21, we'll see this angel's word of promise. But as you think of this, try for a moment to put yourself before the angel comes, all right? It says he's considering these things. We'll actually find that he's sleeping. He's considering, and then the Lord's going to appear to him in a dream. But the difficulty of Joseph's circumstances. And he's highlighted in the midst of these circumstances for real character. It says he was a just man. Another way to translate that is righteous in verse 19. And I love here, if you haven't picked up on this, the language is her husband. He uses that even though they weren't, they weren't married, they were betrothed, a legal relationship, but not yet married. But he says, her husband, being a righteous man, and as he discovers that this young girl to whom he's betrothed is pregnant, he has no desire to throw her under the bus, to grind her down, to humiliate her further. It says that he was unwilling to put her to shame. He resolved to divorce her quietly. All right? So at this point, he's thinking about this. He'd already resolved to separate himself, in effect, to dissolve the betrothal when in the middle of his sleep and in a dream, the angel of the Lord appears to him. Now, whether this is a Christophany, maybe some of you have thought about this. I'm thinking, I don't think this is a Christophany because the Lord Jesus is already in embryonic form, in some form, gestationally within Mary. But the angel comes and uses this word, idu, behold. Hey, see, look. Hey, let me have your eyes. And says, look, Joseph, son of David. Very interesting. That makes sense because of son of David, chapter 1. Verse 1, and of course the role that David plays in these three sets of 14 generations in the genealogy. And he says, do not fear. That's the most common, really, command in the Bible. Don't fear. And look, it's not simply don't fear, but it's don't fear, here it is, to take Mary as your wife, to follow through Right to follow through on what you already have, this legal pledge for marriage, finish that. Don't fear, and here's why. 
no matter what anyone else would think. What's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Again, an asexual conception, a virgin conception, and a virgin birth. All right? And then this is what he says. So, ostensibly or presumably, the command is don't fear, but you have to finish it. To take Mary as your wife, okay? Don't be afraid to do that. And so implicitly, the implicit command is move forward towards marriage. You don't need to worry. Mary was not prostituting herself. She was not unfaithful. The divine has taken place. Now follow this one more step. So the implicit after do not fear, do not fear to do this, right? Like it's like the first time um, I took my little sister to Wan Fu Jing Street in Beijing and you can get fried scorpions on a stick. And I'd heard everyone say, no problem, they taste just like potato chips. And so I looked to Ellen and said, do not fear to eat a fried scorpion. I'll pay for it, you eat it, I'm not interested. Okay, that's how that went pretty well, all right? And so the angel is saying, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. That's an implicit command with this explanation. She hasn't been living loose. She hasn't been promiscuous. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In fact, Pastor James read the Magnificat this morning from Luke 1. We saw her response, just incredible, even quoting from Psalm 103, 17. But he says, so then this is what he says, she will bear a son. And then here's the explicit command. So implicit, do not fear to take her as your wife. Explicit, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Okay, there it is, straightforward. And then another explanation, here's why. It's all about salvation. He will save his people from their sins. Now, so this is this first part here in thinking about Joseph's predicament. We see circumstances, character, and then coming to this angel's word of promise, the second point. Now think about this. If you've, if you've ever noticed, it's a, it's a great study to look every time an angel visits and comes with some form of proclamation. And the appearance here between Matthew's gospel and Luke is the angels come bearing this good news. They're literally gospeling. And it's common in the gospel and birth narratives. And Joseph has no more or no less than two more visits by the angel of the Lord. You might know that if you turn the page. And it said in verse 13, chapter 2, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And then again, in verse 19, okay, verse 19, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. But now look again one more time at the end of, or in the middle of verse 22. It says, all right, he was afraid, all right, 
when he, he arrives in Israel, he's afraid, and he's warned in a dream, I have to assume that's the angel of the Lord again, in verse 22, to withdraw to the city of Galilee. That is to go north from Judea all the way to Galilee, back to their hometown of Nazareth. Look, about the, look at this phrase. This is, this is really the central part of our exposition. Look at this expression, though, from the angel now. As the angel is visiting Joseph in his sleep, he'd been considering these things, though we've read that he's already resolved to divorce her quietly. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. What is that name? Jesus is simply the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua or the Lord saves, or Yahweh saves. Why this name? If you think about this, there it is in the last phrase of verse 21. Why this name Jesus? Because he's come on saving mission. It says, for he will save his people from their sins. It's very interesting if you think we're not told so much how he will save his people from their sins, but what we're told is that it is he who will do it. His name was to reflect his mission. And, and true, even in that era, and, and, and I think so valuable today, is names have meaning. They designate something. Savior means the one who rescues or brings salvation. If you look at the book of Titus, Titus has two, a, a major name for God all throughout. And that's the name Savior, God as Savior, the one who rescues or brings salvation. And kids, let me just pause just for a moment. Being found doesn't mean anything to you until the moment you realize you're what? Lost. If you don't ever think you're lost... The news that someone's going to find you doesn't mean anything to you. But apart from Christ, you're lost and you need to be found. And that's the beauty of these words that he will save his people from their sins. You might as well insert he will save his lost people because that's what we are when we're in our sins. So taken together as we see this word save, right? He will save, meaning he is their savior. I want us to see with verses 20 to 25 what Joseph does. Look at this. This is a summary of what Joseph does. Number one, he receives there in verse 20, the dream with its message from the angel of the Lord. Implicitly, take Mary as your wife. Explicitly, give this son born to Mary, the name Jesus, with this explanation. Two explanations, one for the implicit, take Mary as your wife. That which is, the, the explanation is that which is conceived in hers from the Holy Spirit. And then explicitly, you shall call his name Jesus because, explanation wise, right, he will save his people from their sins. Secondly, not only does he receive the dream, he takes Mary as his wife. Rather than quietly divorcing her as he was initially resolved to do. All right? And so the end then, the end of verse 24, if you look at that where it says, He took his wife, 
That is the response and fulfillment to the implicit command of verse 20. And then thirdly, not only does he receive the dream, not only does he take Mary as his wife, he names the child Jesus, and you look at the end of verse 25 where it says, he called his name Jesus. It's the fulfillment of the explicit command in verse 20 where the word is, or verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus. And then fourth, as you look at what does Joseph do in this narrative, he does not know her. With a normal marital intimacy until after Jesus was born. Though he had already legally entered into marriage with Mary, we know that by the end of verse 24, he took his wife, all right, But by virtue of this expression in verse 25, he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. The implication is he did know her in a a marital way, in a right way, after Jesus was born. Well, let's look finally at Luke's summary in verses 22 through 25. Look at this. All this took place. All right, think about, uh, I I like this expression here in verse um, 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now, then look at verse 22. So that verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. But then as a marker and in parallel, verse 22, all this took place Luke says, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And you'll notice this, that Mary gives birth to Jesus, a son, and Joseph, as kind of a normal function of authority, even as an earthly father would give, with naming as an authority function, he calls his name Jesus, right, in obedience to the angelic word. And Luke says, all of this presumably from 18 through 21, to fulfill Isaiah's prophetic word from Isaiah 7, 14, behold the virgin, the Parthenon, shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And we, mis- we make a great mistake if we read this like, and behold, tomorrow at 10 o'clock, the contractor's going to come and replace the toilet that's been in your house 25 years. Don't let the gravity and the wonder of this bypass you. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which then Luke translates for us, which means, which being interpreted means God with us. And scholars believe that this is actually, as Luke gives this, as he quotes Isaiah 7, 14 and 23, that he's actually noting, he's implying that the angel himself in the dream to Joseph quoted Isaiah 7, 14, and by citing this to Joseph in the, de- in, in the dream, is saying a de facto 
is asserting in a de facto way that God is with us. That to Joseph, your son, the son you're to call Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, is also the Emmanuel of Isaiah's prophecy. And again from John's prologue, you remember this from last week, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Think about it this way in terms of application. The first moment of our communion with God is actually the very first moment when you became a Christian, when breath came into you as surely as it came in to Adam, the first moment that you breathed with true spiritual life and you passed from the realm of the dead to the living, from darkness to light, from in Satan's bonds into the freedom of the children of God, that moment is owed in part to this unspeakable union between the divine and the human. Your communion with God is owned, owed to that union when the word became flesh and he literally tabernacled or pitched his tent among us and with us. Sometimes we get upset when people invade our personal space, but praise God, he invaded humanity. In the supremely satisfied son, he chose, he accepted the taking on of a human body and a human soul forever to save. Don't stop there. When you read and you hear this, he will save his people. This is no abstract offering, no disconnected giving like writing a check to who knows who. You don't know the person on the end receiving it. This is not that at all. This is not where the Son was taking on human flesh and human nature for persons, for a people he did not know or would not know or for whom he would never have affection. When you read, he will save his people from their sins. I want you to think about this. The Son really had a people he really has a people, present tense, who need rescuing and salvation, and he alone brings it. He is that one. When Peter was preaching in the book of Acts and said, there is no other name given on earth, on heaven, from under heaven, among which, by which, or by which people will be saved. That is it. He alone brings it. No one else delivers it. He alone is that saving right arm of the Father. He's the first truly cross-cultural missionary who comes to seek and to save those who are lost and bring those sheep safely to his Father's fold. And there's only one type of salvation if you will ever experience it. I'm gonna, I want to just point out three things about God and how he saves it's not the main point of this text. The main point of this word from the angel is that this will be his name, and the reason you're to give him this name is because this will be his mission. He will be Jesus. He will be the one 
rendered, the Lord saves because he will save his people from their sins. But number one, I want to point this out. And so if for a moment you're thinking, I don't think, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I don't know how to answer that question. And maybe you're thinking, I don't even know if I want to be a Christian, but I want to tell you this, three things. Number one, God does all the saving. There's no one else. Last week we read in John 1.13, and speaking of the children of God, John says they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You don't become a Christian simply because your parents are Christians. You don't inherit that. Just because you go and swim in a lake doesn't make you a fish, or you spend the night in a garage, you don't become a car. God does the saving. Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. But there's a second thing. When he saves you, you are counted among his people. I probably more than once was the last kid picked sometimes. You know, like when you're picking teams to play sports? Sometimes I'd be the last one. I wondered if I'd like ever make a team. Or they'd just stop when they looked at me and be like, you can watch from the sidelines, okay? But when he saves you, you're counted among his people. But you're also not your own. When you get God and he gets you, you have him and you're his. But you no longer have this autonomous claim on your life. You're not out there saying everything is yours except Christ, but he's got that claim on you. Paul teaches us how to count our lives. Are you in, are you in Jesus Christ? Then you're a due loss. You're a bondservant of him. The one who sits in royal authority and power at the right hand of his father. Yes, with a forever human soul and forever a human body. One person with two natures without any contradiction, fully God and fully man. And so it's no wonder when I say that when he saves you, you are counted among his people. It's no wonder that Paul says in Romans 14, 9, and I've used this recently in a number of sermons, that Paul would write, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And so for the most discouraged, most downcast saint, maybe one like in Psalm 42 or Psalm 43 where David is rousing himself out because everything is growl, growling inside. And he says, why are you in despair, O my soul? Hope in God you will yet praise him. The writer of the book of Hebrews reminds us that his high priestly work continues. Right now, he's praying. He's interceding for you and me. Because he can sympathize with our weakness. In case you forgot, he has a forever human body and human soul. And he was made completely like us in every way except unlike us in this one uber important way in that he has not a particle or a hint of sin. His work as our great high priest is never over. There's a third thing. 
Not only does God do the saving, not only does he count you among his people when he saves you, but when he saves you, he saves you particularly, uniquely. He saves his people from their sins. Therefore, if he saves you, if he will save you, he's going to save you from your sins. He doesn't save you from the penalty of your sin without saving you from the enslaving power of your sin, without, slaving, without saving you from the corrupting, polluting, uh, spoiling nature of your sin. But he does this completely. So if you think, I wish that I could just do, you know, like one of those eraser things, like when you can write the kids have, what is that called? Is something, Matt? What? Etch-a-sketch. You know, like you can just do something, it's like, I don't like that. And it's all gone, only to start again. When Jesus saves us, he etch-a-sketches the sinfulness of our lives. And I can't overstate how important this is. There's something I'm really scared about as I sit here as a pastor, and I think Pastor Jamie would echo this. It's like some of you have heard this over and over and over to the point of dullness. It's like originally when something was really hot, you couldn't even touch it, much less grab it, much less carry it across the room. But then you get used to hot things and you no longer, your hands are desensitized to how hot and the potential danger of carrying something at that temperature. And I think it's so it is with the gospel. You're no longer moved by it. You remain unconvinced and unconverted. And you're in grave danger if you keep hearing the gospel and not acting on it because you're in reinforcing that you may hear but completely ignore the one truth, the one person whose name is Jesus, who has the power, who has the authority, the ability to save you from your sin. And so I plead with you, if you hear his name, you remember his mission. He's Jesus. It means Yahweh saves. He is Emmanuel or God with us. He will never save us without drawing near to us, without assuming our nature as he has, and without taking the penalty upon himself that he was owed by us. I want to conclude with this. We've seen tonight just these three points, right? Joseph's predicament. We saw his circumstances and his character revealed. The angel's word of promise and hope. And we saw even in that, of course, this implicit command when he says, fear not to take, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. With the explanation of this miraculous reality in her that that which is conceived in her, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, right? That which is conceived in her, he says, is from the Holy Spirit. And then this explicit command, you shall call his name Jesus with this explanation because he's going to save his people from their sins. And so the name completely works. Joshua, 
Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. But I want to close as we think, as we've seen Luke's summary. By taking in his body on the cross this full measure, the complete weight, the total punishment due us for our sins. We understand Isaiah 53, and I want to read this for you. Have you ever thought that the reason that red is so prominent in Christmas decorations, if you've never, I don't know that this was intentional, but I want for you to think for the moment of what our Savior shed. We're told in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds or by his wounds, we are healed. Yahweh is laid on him, the iniquity of us all. Red, I say, is an appropriate color for the Advent season because he was born to die, born to bleed red in a vicarious death upon the cross for his people. We only have another seven days, I think, if you count. Another eight days between now, including Christmas Day. How will you respond uh, to the Word became flesh? To the Word who was there in the beginning? To the Word who was with God? To the Word who John says was God? How will you respond to this one whose name is Jesus because he will infallibly save his people from their sins. How will you respond to this one that was prophesied so many centuries before that he would be inside a virgin? He would be the fruit of a virgin conception and a virgin birth. And his name would be Emmanuel. Is it just another Sunday at Grace Baptist Church? Today is a great day. As we read in Hebrews 3, if you, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. That's it. You say, Lord Jesus, you said, the angel said that the reason your name is Jesus is because you'll save your people from, your, from their sins. And I want to be saved from my sins. I want to be saved from... I want to be saved from the debt. I don't want to owe you. I, I don't want to owe you a debt that I cannot possibly pay. And this sin that's got me enslaved, where I feel like I can hardly not do it. I can't do what I can't do the good that I want to do. I always do the bad that I don't wish to do, but I feel like I'm a slave to it. I just the dirt of my own sin, my own heart, the way I think, what I feel. The words that I say, the things that I want to do, they seem so dirty because of sin. Will you save me? You might remember that, that Brother Morris right there with the invocation. He mentioned Matthew 11. And it's very interesting that at the end of Matthew 11, 
this one who was said, was sent to save his people from their sins. The one who told Nicodemus in John 3 that he came into the world not to judge the world, but the world might be saved by him. He says this, look, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, at Christmas, sometimes when you're a little child, you think a lot of terms about getting, getting Christmas presents. But when we think of Christmas, the reality is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Let's come to him and to all of you. Come again in a fresh way in faith to the one who make your soul so very whole.